This morning we're going to continue our study in Esther. So if you want to open up to Esther 7. Entitled the message, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord, which is a quote of Romans 12, 19. And this morning as we examine Esther 7, we're going to see God does a much better job of taking vengeance than we do. Now, sometimes God will choose to use armies to accomplish his goal, such as when he sent Saul to kill the Amalekites, although Saul didn't finish the job. Sometimes he uses the hand of man to accomplish the goal, but the truth is, is you and I should not seek to avenge ourselves. We should leave it into the hand of God. And in the book of Esther, when Haman had the decree signed to destroy the Jews, the Jews did not form an army to retaliate, but rather got on their knees and prayed to God. We see that not only Mordecai, but all the Jews, it said, were fasting and praying and seeking God. That should be our response. Now, after the season of prayer, then there was some action taken. It wasn't, again, necessarily forming an army, but God had led Queen Esther to address the matter to the king. But her and all the Jews had a firm reliance on God to deliver them and not their own strength. Now, she was in a position to do so, was she not? Who else was in a position to go before the king? Nobody. Today our country is in a total mess. Yet I see too many Christians trying to resolve the problem in the strength of the flesh and not having a firm reliance on omnipotent, uh, the omnipotent God of heaven. Now, again, this does not negate action that we should take, but there should be a season of our getting on our face before God, repenting and asking God for his guidance. In other words, our action should be Holy Spirit-led action, not flesh-led action. I have seen many Christians saying, here's what we need to do. Without any time praying, without any time this, you know, of, of seeking God's face, but just here's the action we need to do. I try here at Freedom Baptist Church, before we decide to do something, to take time to pray about it. I've had some say that I'm too slow in making decisions. Well, I'd rather have time to think about it, think it through, pray about it, and ask God for his guidance before making the decision. So here in Persia, in Esther's day, we'll see God took care of the situation in a a way possible that only he could do. So let's read Esther chapter 7, and we'll read all ten verses. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther the queen, uh, with Esther the queen, and the king said unto Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther, and it shall be granted thee? And what is thy request, and it shall be formed even unto half the kingdom? Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in, in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request, for we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed and to be slain and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Then the king, Ahasuerus, answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy 
is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen, and the king, arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath, went into the palace garden, and Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen, for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. Then the king returned out of the palace garden into the the place of the banquet of wine, and Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was. Then said the king, Well, he forced the queen also before me in in the house, as the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face, and Harbonah, one of the king's chamberlains, said before the king, Behold also the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good <coughs> for the king. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he, was prepared, that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. So, Here's how I want us to see how God takes vengeance in this particular case. First, we see Esther's request in verses 1 through 6. Secondly, we'll see the king's rage in verse 7. And then we'll see Haman's ruin in verses 8 through 10. We need to trust the omnipotent hand of God. Stop trusting in self. Stop trusting in man. But trust God. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, again, thank you <coughs> for your word. And I pray as we examine this passage this morning, again, Lord, we re- realize the importance of stop trusting in the flesh, but to trust in you. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Esther's request. Let's first of all look at her attitude of her request. Now, she is the queen, but when she comes before the king, again, remember, the king had power in Persia that even if his wife were to come to him without being requested, he could have her killed. And so she comes with an attitude that, first of all, was respectful. She respected his position. We need to be careful that we do not disrespect the position that God has given individuals. It troubles me to watch people today who will talk about the President of the United States in a extremely derogatory way when we we had our President just a few years ago and the other side did that. They were all over them saying, hey, you need to respect the position of the office. Well, then why don't you be consistent and respect the position of the office? Do I agree with President Joe Biden? No. But do I respect the office in which he holds? Yes, I do. And there needs to be a certain respect for the office, and we have failed to continue to do so in our country. But I'll tell you where it started, in the home. I don't understand parents that allow their children to call them by their first name. And if you can't show respect to your parents, how do we expect children to show respect to others. And then it went to the school because it used to be, even if your teacher was wrong, your parents never told you that they sided with you. They always said, respect the authority no matter what, right? Now, your parents might have gone behind your back and had a talk with the teacher that you never knew about, but you weren't part of it. But today, everybody knows about it because they put it on Facebook and the kids know about it. And the parents will sit there and gripe about the authority of the teacher disrespecting the teacher in front of their children and wonder why their children have no respect for their teachers, right? Okay, here's one that I see even many Christians doing. 
We claim to have respect for the police officer, right? But I have heard Christians still sometimes use, you know, say things about uh, police officers in a, in a negative way. Okay? Let me ask you a question. When you're driving in the car, going 75 in a 55-mile-an-hour zone, and you see a cop, and you say, oh, there's a cop. Oh, got to slow down. And your kids see you slowing down. Okay, maybe it's not exactly a negative comment about the police, but did you show them that you respect authority? Yes, Ahasuerus is her husband, but he's king, and she shows respect. Ephesians 4.15, but speaking the truth in love, we need to learn to speak the truth lovingly. Her request was clear and direct. Now, when she spoke, she didn't sugarcoat the matter. You know, you ever hear these people that can speak 15 minutes, and by the time they're done, you say, I have no clue what you just said. It's like you said words, but there was nothing there. Because they try to sugarcoat everything so much that there's absolutely no substance to what they say. Now, she's pretty direct in what she says. Um, I request my life and the life of my people because we're to be all killed. That's pretty direct. Pretty plain what she wants. And you and I need to learn to speak plainly. Stop trying to sugarcoat things. It's okay to still call sin, sin. But we sugarcoat it in our society, don't we? They're no longer a drunk. They have an alcohol problem. It's no longer adultery. They're just having an affair. You know, and we could go down the whole list. We've sugarcoated everything. It's no longer sodomy. It's just an alternate lifestyle. Really? And her request was concise. Again, I've heard people that can take 10 minutes to say something that can be said in two. Very wordy about what they say. She makes it very concise, showing her respect to the king's time. So she had a proper attitude in her request, but secondly, there was a boldness in her request. Now, she wasn't brash to the king, but she's very bold, saying, um, let's look at it right here. Verse 3, if I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if, I, if, I please the, if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed and to be slain and to perish. She's very bold in what she says. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. She was not brash, but remembered whom she was addressing. And you and I, God tells us we can come to him boldly, but we don't come to God brashly. The third thing about a request is she personalized her request. She made sure the king understood she was a Jew and she was to be killed. Now, she also interceded for all her people, again, because she was in a position to do so. The people could not go to the king on their own behalf, and so she is interceding for them. By the way, these principles apply to you and I when we come before the Lord in prayer, that we need to be interceding for others. You know, we need to be praying for lost souls. Sometimes they don't even realize how lost they are. They don't understand their need. But we do. So are we praying for them? Are we interceding for them, going to the King of Kings on their behalf? Then we see the details of her request. I like what she explains here in verse 4. 
She says, we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, slain, and to perish. Okay, so the idea is we're going to be annihilated. But if we had been sold for bondwomen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue altogether. Or held my tongue. There's a comma there. Not altogether. Now, interesting. If we were just made slaves, I would have kept silent. Any thoughts on that? But we're to be annihilated. So therefore, I feel I must come to the king. If we were just going to be made slaves, I wouldn't have said a word. Why would she do this? So there still would be survival, even though they'd be in slavery. Okay, she's shown the desperation of the situation because, again, going along with what both of these have said, if they were sold into slavery, the king would have had opportunity to change somehow, to come up with some way to try to, to rescue these people. The problem is, is they're to be totally annihilated and there is no second chance. And she's saying, so what she's saying is, if there was any opportunity of a way of you figuring this out and having resolved it on your own, I wouldn't even be here. But the situation is so desperate, there is no other option. So King, I must take your time to give this request. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? But then she also says, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. So again, we talked about this before when the whole decree was signed, is how did the king never realize the economic loss he's going to have? Well, his smart wife brings it up to him and says, okay, so the enemy says he's going to put all this money back in the coffers, but I don't think he's going to be able to put back in what you're going to lose because all these people are going to be dead. Not only are they not going to be paying taxes, but they're not going to be productive citizens no longer in the, in the, uh, in, in the kingdom. All the work that they do, all the things that they manufacture, all the things that they, they buy and sell, all that's gone. Your economic loss is going to be so great, you're not going to be able to compensate for it. Now, that's the long way of saying what she said real nice and concise, okay? But that's essentially what she's saying to the king. Is it not? You're not going to be able to make up for the damage here, king. You see, she's very practical in bringing up the details to the king. Now, when we pray, God wants us to bring very specific things to him. Are we bringing it to God because God didn't know and he needs information from us? No. So why does God want us to be specific in our prayers to him? Okay? When he answers, he gets the glory for it. John, you had something to add to that? Okay, we see it's God who answered the prayer. And also, I think we're showing specifically our reliance on him, along with all these other things that have been mentioned. So she's very detailed in what she says. Now again, do these principles not apply when we are praying? Should we pray respectfully? Yes. Should we pray boldly? Should we pray personally? When I'm praying for individuals, I should name them by name, right? And when I pray, I should pray specifically. Not only name them by name, but I know certain requests that people have, certain needs that people have. I should bring those to the throne of grace so when God answers them, I see God answering specifically, right? So that's Esther's request. Now, too often, again, I think we skip over this whole part 
of going to God first and having a request, a time when we go to God and request that he intercedes and intervenes. But secondly, we see the king's rage. So, there are several things I believe the king recognized here in verse 7. The king, arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath, went out in the palace garden. Now, that's all it says about it, but let's think about it. He recognized now all of a sudden, Haman's deceived me. Should have realized that by the arrogance of the man. Recognized the possible loss of yet another wife, right? Because the law of the Medes and Persians is unchangeable. It's signed, it has his stamp on it, can't be undone. And we're going to see he actually comes up with a plan that kind of undoes it without undoing it because he can't undo it. Recognizes the devastating consequences. Why? Because his wife finally opened his eyes and said, do you realize the economic impact this is going to have on your kingdom? And all this happened by, as a result of a well-planned and executed presentation by Esther who was led by God when she did so. You say, how do you know that? Because did not Esther tell her cousin Mordecai, go get all the Jews and pray and fast for me for three days, and I'm going to get all my maidens, and we're going to pray and fast for three days. Why do you think she was praying and fasting for three days? Because she's seeking God's guidance in this matter. Now, don't you think God answered her prayer and gave her the boldness to stand before the king? Don't you think God gave her the words to say before the king? Now, Christian, you and I need to have a righteous anger. Ephesians 4.26 tells us, Be ye angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and found in the temples those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them to sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And the disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Now, let me ask a question. When Jesus was cleansing the temple, and even listen to the words John says, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Do you think Jesus was angry, yes or no? Okay, he being the Son of God, could he sin? So, is it possible to be angry and not sin? Yes. However, because we have a sinful nature, I think it's a lot harder for us. Because what does... When the rage starts inside of us, what typically happens to us? We want to lash out. So, let's continue on here. Another passage makes it even clearer that yes, indeed, Jesus was angry. Mark 3, 5. And when he looked round about on, about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of the heart, he saith unto man, stretch forth thine hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored to the other. So yes, it is possible to be angry and not to sin. Matthew Henry puts it this way. He says, if we would be angry and not sin, says one, we must be angry at nothing but sin. 
And we should be more jealous for the glory of God than for any interest or reputation of our own. Now, here's the problem. When you and I many times get angry, it's because we've been embarrassed. It's because we feel belittled. And it's because of me, not because of sin that is taken away from the glory of God. So if you and I are going to have a righteous anger, it has to be in the fact that there are things that go against the glory of God and taken away from the glory of God. And we need to take off the blinders of the world's thinking and think biblically. But we sinful creatures must be filled with the Spirit in order to have a righteous anger. Ephesians 5.18, Be not drunk with wine where is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I am in no way, shape, or form trying to pretend that this pagan king had a righteous anger. Okay? But I'm saying for you and I, sometimes... Being angry excuse me, at sin is not sinful. Being angry at a brother without a cause is sinful. God said so. Being angry without a cause, period. Being angry because I feel somebody wronged me or, you know, the, the, because of me is a sinful anger. Well, let's move on. Let's look at Haman's ruin. Now, I want you to remember the state of Haman. The night before, he went home, and he was all happy because Esther had a banquet. And the only two invited were the king and myself. And this is wonderful. But when I came home, that stupid Mordecai, he wouldn't bow to me. And so his wife and friends say, build a gallows. So Haman has the gallows built right outside his house there so he can hang Mordecai tomorrow. But... When tomorrow comes and Haman's walking in the palace all proud because I'm going to go to the king and I'm going to have Mordecai hung today and this is a great day. And all of a sudden he sees this guy look out the door and he says, yeah, Haman's here. And so hmm, calls Haman in and Haman stands before the king. And the king says, Haman, what should be done to a man that the king wants to honor? And Haman's like, ha, 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 this is great. And you all know what happened. He ends up parading Mordecai throughout the town on a horse in the king's garb. And so he went home, and remember, he's pouting again because I can't believe that just happened. And so he calls his friends and his wife again, but this time, instead of encouraging them, like, hey, Haman, the end's near. And then all of a sudden, the servants come and say, it's time to go to the banquet. So he's in a bad state of mind anyhow, right? Now, all of a sudden, he gets to the banquet, and they start the banquet, and the king says to Esther, Esther, what is your request? And all of a sudden, Esther says, I and my people are going to be killed, and there's a decree that's going to have all of us slain. And <clears throat> the king gets mad, and he walks out to the garden, and this man is desperate. His frame of mind is totally off, and he's completely desperate because he sees the king is angry at him. And he's like, oh boy, this is not going to end well. Things are not going my way. But desperate men take de desperate measures. And to show that, he takes and throws all caution to the wind. Now, they're sitting at a table. Now, remember, Eastern customs are different than Western customs. When you're sitting at a table, we think of sitting at a table, right? But they more were reclining, lying down more so, most many times on their side, okay, because there were low tables. They didn't put legs on them yet. And so he stands up. 
It's not like he pops out of a chair. He stands up, okay? And Esther apparently moved to her bed. And so what do we find next? He's fallen on the bed with her. Haman, you're pretty desperate to get on the bed with the queen because that doesn't look good, period. You know, when I counsel a lady, my wife is always in the room with me. When I counsel somebody, I, especially if it's like a couple and she can't be with me, I still try to be in a room where there's at least a door to, or with a window that people can see in. Okay, not that I'm trying to advertise who I'm counseling, but because of safety, appearance, caution. You've got to be cautious, right? Not to put you on the spot, but Stephen, you probably counsel Marines. If you counsel a female Marine, you probably have another female Marine there or, or somebody else there to verify what's going on, right? But you would never do it just you and she alone. Why? Safety. So this guy's mind is so far gone. He's so desperate. He's like, please, I'm begging for my life. Can you imagine him on the bed with her just begging for his life? And when the king walks back out of the garden, how that must look. Obviously, it looked bad because the king walks in and he goes, really, you're going to defile my wife right here in front of me? And interesting, he doesn't give him a trial. This is why I say it wasn't a righteous anger. He doesn't give him a trial, doesn't give the man an opportunity to speak. And everybody in the room knows about what's ready to happen because as the king walks in and everybody sees the king's face, they're already taking a bag and just covering Haman's face. They're like, he's done. He's toast. <laughs> Proverbs 11, 5 and 6. The righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way, but the wicked shall fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright shall deliver them, but the transgressors shall be taken in their own naughtiness. Never forget to maintain caution. And then he's hastily sentenced to death. Now, the king came back in the room and assumed the worst, which is the typical response of the world. But Christian, may I say, you and I need to be slow and get the facts first. And you and I need to consider the reputation and testimony of an individual along with getting all the facts before drawing a conclusion. Let's not be hasty to judge. Now this next part, here again, God's humor. They even mention the guy by name. He's recorded in the scripture in verse 9. Harbanah. One of the chamberlains said before the king, Behold also the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good of the king. Can you just imagine the smile on this guy's uh, face, grinning from ear to ear? Hey, king, Haman made this gallows fifty cubits high, and he was going to hang Mordecai. Who, who actually did good for you, king? <laughs> just thought you might want to know that. And I can imagine half the people, half the king's uh, servants sitting there like, <laughs> you know, because I'm sure they all loved Haman, right? I mean, the arrogant Haman, I'm sure everybody in the court really, truly actually loved this man. No, they probably hated him. And they're all like, oh boy. <laughs> so what's the king say? That's a good idea. Go put Haman on his own gallows. And so there he hangs on the end of a rope on the very gallows that he purchased. Who says God doesn't have a sense of humor? The man who tried to destroy the Jews, God 
destroyed. What if the Jews had tried to do it themselves in the power of the flesh? Definitely wouldn't have been the way God accomplished it. What if Esther had not realized that God had placed her there for such a time as this? What if she had failed to realize that all the hardships she has gone through up to this point were for the very purpose of saving her people? God only does a better job avenging me than I do, but God can do it with a sense of humor and a twist that makes his people rejoice. Could you imagine as it went throughout the kingdom to all the Jews? So here's the story. So Haman was going to hang Mordecai, but Haman ended up on his very own gallows. No, that didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell, okay, tell me how that happened. Well, here's what happened. Queen Esther went in, and, and they start telling the story. Can you imagine how this energized the Jews to, re, to renew their faith in God? Because it wasn't a story that was promoting Mordecai. It was not a story that was promoting Esther. It was promoting the God who destroyed their enemy, giving glory to God. And I could just imagine these people who had been praying and fasting, rejoicing in hearing Haman's debt. Because yes, the decree is still signed. Yes, it's still going to happen. But they're figuring, hey, if God can get rid of him, God can overturn this whole situation. Now we're going to see how God accomplishes that in the coming chapters. So many people in our country look to men to be their savior. I am tired, I'm really sick and tired of hearing Republicans saying, well, what we need is Trump back in the office. Let me tell you something. My faith doesn't rely on a man. If Donald Trump's time in office as president is done, God can raise somebody else to do the job. Stop putting your faith in a man. And by the way, he was not perfect, in case you didn't notice. Yet I see too many, with an R after their name, who claim to be Christian, still promoting, as if we could just get him back in office. I even hear stuff like that said, if we could just get him back in office, everything would be fine. And I'm sitting there thinking, it's not putting your faith in a man, it's putting your faith in God. So, Christian... Do we seek vengeance or do we allow God to avenge us? Do we seek the glory of God and his righteousness? But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. When oppressed, we need to seek his face as the Jews did. Now, we say, well, what we need to have is prayer. Well, there were several other elements involved in that. There was a humbling of self. There was a seeking God's face. There was a repentance. There was a fasting. There was a complete reliance on God. Somehow we seem like, we act like if we just say these little prayers that God will hear us. And I'm not saying God doesn't hear prayer, but did not Jesus even say when the disciples said, why can we not cast out these demons? This kind goeth not out but by prayer and... Then why do we neglect sometimes the other elements of seeking God, which include fasting? You hear what I'm saying? But when oppressed, we need to seek his face and take action as he leads and watch him answer in such a way that takes care of the enemy and brings glory to his holy name. By the way, 
As you look throughout Scripture and you look throughout history, that's what God is wanting more than, what is important, should be important to us more than anything is the glory of God. With this, we'll close. Remember Gideon? Gideon, you have too many. Tell everybody who's scared, go home. Okay, so they all go home. Gideon, you still have too many. So we're going to run a little test. How many did Gideon end up with? 300. Who got the glory for the victory? But if he had gone in with thousands, they would have taken the credit themselves. We need to remember, folks, the important thing is God's glory. Let's bow forward to prayer.